Welcome back or welcome to Pridecast Live on KPFK 90.7 FM. Presented to you by KPFK, The Blunt Post with Vic, as well as the Stonewall Democratic Club. The next show coming up is Feminist Magazine's Pride Special. Host Lynn Harris-Ballin focuses on intersectionality, activism, social justice, LGBTQ plus rights and history with guests Alexis Clement, Jeanette Bronson, and Yasmin Monet Watkins. Enjoy. This is Feminist Magazine, a weekly radical radio show and podcast on KPFK, produced by a diverse coalition of feminists. Every week we bring you a mix of intersectional stories and guests to help you resist and engage. Our show usually airs on Tuesdays at 3 and via podcast in all the usual spaces. But today we're honored to be part of the Pridecast Live special on KPFK. And I'm your host today, Lynn Harris-Ballin. KPFK is creating this special programming proudly to celebrate Pride Day with a marathon of diverse shows. And Pride 2020 is not our usual Pride. It's still a celebration, but even more so, it's also reminding us that Pride began as a protest, a protest against police brutality, against discriminatory legislation, and against the violence facing all members of our diverse community. We're going to bring you three different guests today to bring you different aspects of what Pride means to them. Take a listen. What does it take for queer women's spaces to survive? Filmmaker Alexis Clements traveled the country to find out. And part of Pride is being aware of how few opportunities we have as members of the queer and lesbian community to come together. Her documentary, All We've Got, is a personal exploration of LGBTQ women's communities, cultures, and social justice work. Then, Yasmin Monet Watkins brings three poems and a call to action, and she serves on the Arts and Culture Committee for Black Lives Matter Los Angeles. And last, our third segment, Jeanette Bronson, co-founder of Blue, Black Lesbians United, joins us. We're going to hear from Jeanette how Blue has created and nurtured virtual community in these times and how they are celebrating Pride 2020. First up, what does it take for queer women's spaces to survive? June is officially Pride Month, and HuffPost Live is doing a series of segments celebrating the queer community. And we all know who the L in LGBTQ stands for. Lesbians, of course, but perhaps not for long. You're listening to Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. In 2010, a Portland bar called The Egyptian Room closed its doors, and the city's only bar that catered specifically to lesbians was shuttered for good. Portland is not alone. Lesbian bars and bookstores and spaces of all kinds are closing around the country, from Hollywood to Houston to Philadelphia. It is a little more challenging being a lesbian bar versus being just an anybody or just mainly gay male bar. We do constantly face 
sort of the threat or the pressure of getting squeezed out. Lots of different stuff happens here. People eat here, people fight here, people create here, envision and dream. Sometimes people sleep here, people make love here. That feels important. As we as a group become, have more integrity, we as individuals can also have more integrity and we become a lot less breakable than we have, we've been in the past. I wonder what the city would be like if, if the Esperanza wasn't here. Um, and I wonder if I would be doing what I was doing, but also if I was, how much more scary that would be for me. today inspires us almost as much as its precious contents because this is the only building ever owned by a lesbian organization in this metropolitan area. It's the only institution that I know of that continues the values and beliefs that I started working in gay liberation. Mm -hmm. And back then it was gay liberation. That's right. <laughs> That's right, it was. And those are voices from the documentary film, All We've Got. It's a personal exploration of LGBTQ women's communities, cultures, and social justice work. And the physical spaces, the bars, the bookstores, the arts and political hubs. And right now we've got on the line the director and the woman who took that personal journey, Alexis Clements. Hey, Alexis, welcome to Feminist Magazine. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, it's such a personal journey. Um, I love that. I love the way that you approach this. It kind of came out of your own coming out, right? Yeah, yeah. I didn't come out until my right before I turned 30, and I was looking to catch up. <laughs> <laughs> and find a place to belong. Yeah, I think a lot of people who are queer are given the signal that there is an LGBT community out there for us to find. And I definitely believed that and wanted to find it and ended up on a, on a quite a long journey trying to understand what that really means and if such a thing really exists. So the film title, All We've Got, it, it's kind of a lament in a way, but you wanted to visit the surviving spaces and, and find out, you know, why they were thriving, why they were open. So you chose five specific venues. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's give our listeners a sense of these places and spaces that you visited. And you start right in the middle of the country, right? That's right. Yeah. I knew I had to include a bar because bars are so much of the mythology of what queer space looks like. Right. Obviously, bars were the only space for many generations of queer folks. But um, today, I feel like it acts in a certain way as both a real place and a mythic idea. So I wanted to visit a bar first in the film, and I realized very quickly that most of the conversation about bars is focused on the East Coast or the West Coast, and we don't hear a lot from the folks pretty much everywhere else in the country when it comes to bars. And someone told me there were a couple of 
bars, lesbian bars in Oklahoma. And wow. when I knew that there weren't even any lesbian bars in London, I was like, well, I got to get to Oklahoma City. Exactly. And I think what was so clear that came so clearly out of it was how much in that particular community, um, you know, as they were talking about the owners, the Bible Belt, how much the the context for them was so much more difficult their bar is everything, so much more than just mm-hmm. a place to go and drink, right? Right, exactly. That was one of the biggest lessons that I learned in that bar is that bars function completely differently depending on the city they're in and the kinds of needs that the people in that city have. So in Oklahoma City, there really aren't that many spaces for queer women and trans folks. Um, there's certainly a fair number of bars mainly steered or aimed at a gay male population. But for the rest of the queer population in Oklahoma City, there's not a lot of options. So a bar functions in a lot of ways as much more than just a bar. It's it's a community space. It's it's everything. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep, exactly. So, so for our listeners who are not part of the queer or, or other marginalized communities, you know, that was like a really good example of why we need to claim space for ourselves, right? Yeah, I mean, on a very base level, especially in a community where politics or religion make it very difficult to be out with your relationship or your gender identity, it's crucial to have a space where you can go and relax on a some level, like at the very base level, go to a place where you're not going to be questioned, where you're not going to be policed in a very literal way for some folks, particularly people of color, and also um, where you can start to build social connections, which is a huge piece of building yourself, you know, finding other people who you can relate to, learning how to deal with things as simple for some folks as finding a doctor, but for queer folks, especially queer folks whose gender ID is a little bit different than just being, you know, a cisgendered woman, it's really challenging sometimes to find a healthcare provider and having, being able to go into the bar and be like, gosh, I've got to get my pap smear and I can't deal with the doctor I had because they're a jerk. Do you, who do you go to? Really simple questions like that have a big impact on people's lives. So it's kind of the networking and mm-hmm. and that exactly. safe space. Um, I think in one of the other sections, one of the folks in the film talked about how it gave her um, a way to be stronger when she went back out into the world. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, aside from bars, because the the film, we can talk a little bit more about the film features a lot of other kinds of spaces. One thing that these spaces allow people to do that I think we don't talk about enough is they allow people to take on roles and learn things, particularly skills that they might not be given elsewhere. From the simple thing of like a very butch presenting lesbian or female body person not necessarily being able to get a bartender gig in other bars, being given a bartender, you know, like really simple things from finding work to, to completely different examples where, you know, for instance, you're in the Lesbian History Archives, another space featured in the dock, and you've always wanted to try out archiving or you wanted to try out writing or you wanted to try out art making, 
And that's a space that provides regular chances for you to do that in a place that's affirming of your identity. Yeah. You can build skills, have the chance to be a leader, and then you can take that outside of those spaces. That thing, the affirming of your identity, that's the key, right? So yes, the second one, the Lesbian History Archives in New York, in Brooklyn, actually. Mm -hmm. So beautiful to see some of the historic and archival footage that you have and mm -hmm. um, just a sense of how it's been there for so long, but also how it came to be and then how it has expanded and remained open to you know, a variety of identities as labels have changed and different thoughts have changed about who we are. So that's personally important to you because you live there, right? I live here in Brooklyn, yeah. Yes. And that's a space that was one of the, the queer spaces that was most important to me as I was coming out. And one of the things that really taught me is how nuanced and complex these labels are that we use and how it's so important that we resist the tendency to simplify them or essentialize them. So there are folks who identify as lesbian who are trans. There are folks who identify as lesbian who don't identify as woman or don't identify as trans. There's folks who identify as lesbian who sleep with people of all genders and a million, you know, a million other varieties. And a place like that really helps you resist a culture that wants to create really simple categories that put really strong lines around identities that just don't work. Right. So the spaces that you covered in the film, and we are talking to filmmaker Alexis Clements about her documentary, All We've Got. The spaces are both about the complexities of who we are, but also the intersectional identities. And so mm -hmm. the, the Esperanza Center in Texas, tell us a little bit about how you chose that and found that space, because that's quite complex. It is a very complex space, and that's a really interesting space because while it is led primarily by queer women of color as well as other queer folks, it is not a quote-unquote queer space in terms of the fact that anybody can come through the doors there, and lots of people do come through the doors there who are not queer identified. So the Esperanza Peace and Justice Center is in San Antonio, Texas, in a neighborhood that is traditionally a Mexican and Mexican-American neighborhood and has been economically marginalized for quite some time. And the work that they do in that community and cultural center and political space, the work they do there is built very much on the kind of ideas being established by queer women of color in the 70s who were saying, I'm not just a lesbian. I'm not just a woman of color. I'm not just a mother. I'm not just, you know, anything. I'm all of these things together. And what that space does in a way that personally I have rarely seen any other organization do is try to really take that to the core of this, of the organization and be like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna take our full identities and engage in political and cultural work that is never a single issue. Right. They're really living the, the writings of like Gloria Anzaldúa or Audre Lorde. They're, they're informing the work through, through that writing and thinking. 
Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, on the surface, you might think, okay, they're primarily doing anti-gentrification work, or they're primarily doing cultural work, or they're primarily doing this or that. But the reality is, one of the key methods that they use is culture. So they'll show a film, and they'll have a conversation afterwards. And through by bringing in these audiences and having real conversation with folks, they're interrogating these ideas and asking everybody else to also think about those intersectional identities and the way you can't really separate the fact of a neighborhood's economic marginalization from the fact that they're also being culturally mar marginalized. You know, in a city that is majority Latino, Latinx, why is the Alamo the most important sort of the most frequently visited, let's say, um, cultural institution for many people in that city. It begs a lot of questions about where we not only put our political effort, but our cultural value. Yeah, so I really love how you expanded the definition of what a quote-unquote, you know, LGBTQ lesbian space is. You looked at one that was mm -hmm. informed by, like, decades and generations of lesbian thinkers and, and writers and, and politics, and that was really wonderful. So tell us about the, the next couple of spaces as well so that our listeners can get a feel for how you, you continued your journey. Absolutely. So the, the next space that you, um, you encounter in the film is the WOW Cafe Theater, which is here in New York City. And it was founded in 1981 primarily by a group of lesbians, but there were always folks of all genders and all sexualities participating. And it has, over the decades, gone through many evolutions. It's, it is still primarily a theater and performance space, um, but lots of different stuff happens in that space beyond just theater. And in a way, one of the things that was really interesting to me about that space was all of those different transitions around who who is participating in that space over time. So they made the inclusion of trans artists explicit in the 2000s. There were a number of women of color who came in and really wanted to see more of themselves in this space and made a conscious effort to make that happen. So what do those changes look like? Because in my experience, what we call lesbian space is very rarely exclusively lesbians. And that's really interesting to me. Why yeah. is that? What's, what's interesting? Why, why are those borders more porous in these spaces? Because our identities cross over into these other spaces as well, I think, right? Absolutely, yeah. It's never yeah. so simple. No. Those definitions are never so simple. What, what is a lesbian? You know, we joked at a Lesbian History Archives event the other day, we could have 10 events about trying to define that word and you would still not get to the bottom of it. Exactly. Well, we kind of love it that way. So um, yeah. <laughs> um, your final space that you, you, you visited was where? Mm -hmm. Right. So the final, in fact, the final group that you meet in the film is not a physical space at all. And in a way, I thought that was an important place to finish because so few so few gatherings of queer people, particularly queer women and trans folks, actually happen in physical spaces. Right. They happen in people's homes. They happen wherever you can meet up that week. And so the final group that um, you meet in the film is 
two women involved in the Trans Ladies Picnics, which is a, a, a series of picnics and are started by Red Durkin, one of the people that you meet in the film. And she really wanted to resist a culture where spaces for trans women in particular were service-oriented, where you were going to be part of a support group or be part of or receive support in some way, often from a nonprofit institution. And, you know, she has these amazing punk politics and radical politics, and she was like, screw that. You know, I don't want that. I want to just hang out. I want to meet people. I want to build different kinds of support internally amongst ourselves. So where can folks find out more about it? We're talking to Alexis Clements about All We've Got, the documentary film. What's the link? Absolutely, yeah. So Women Make Movies, an amazing distributor, has come on to help me get this film out into the world. So it is officially a Women Make Movies release. Um, The simplest URL to visit where you can get links about how to learn more about the film is allwevegot.org. No spaces, no dashes, just allwevegot.org. Fabulous. So thank you so much, Alexis Clements, talking to us about your documentary, All We've Got. And we appreciate you being with us on Feminist Magazine. Thank you so much for having me. This is broadcast live on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am Victor Rami, and you are listening to a special Pride program from Feminist Magazine. At KPFK, we believe in free speech, independent thought, and universal equality. We bring you information without corporate influence or political spin. We provide a voice for the voiceless and power to the people. This is Kevin Fleming, Program Director of KPFK, encouraging you to keep community radio alive. Make your tax-deductible donation today at kpfk.org. Do it now. Thank you. Yasmin Monet Watkins brings three poems and a call to action. She is a queer writer, performer, and activist whose work weaves art and activism and all things black girl magic. And she also serves on the Arts and Culture Committee for Black Lives Matter LA. And this piece that she brings us today was part of Dyke Day LA, which happened the first week of June, which is one of LA's few dyke, lesbian, queer gathering spaces. My name is Yasmin Monet Watkins, and I'm a proud black bisexual poet, actress, writer, comedian, and organizer. Thank you for the invitation to share some of my poetry in this space. Uh, Today I'll be sharing three poems and a call to action. 
So this first piece that I want to share uh, is in dedication to a woman named Waukesha Wilson. She was like LA's Sandra Bland. She's one of uh, over 600 people who were killed by the LAPD um, and who have not received justice. Waukesha's poem. On the one year anniversary of yet another black death, a black woman is risen. And the voice of her people, she walks in our steps and lives in our movement. We say her name, Waukesha Wilson. We say her name, Waukesha Wilson, demanding justice now. Knowing black death and cover-ups still sound the same across this country. From Sandra Bland to Emmett Till, today we lift her up and make her visible. On the day of yet another black death behind bars, on the day that yet another black woman's murder is deemed suicide, on the day that LAPD rules themselves in conduct, we grieve and cry and then dream because sometimes the dreaming gives us clarity of visions to work towards in the waking. And in my dreams, I pray an alternate universe exists and somewhere on that alternate timeline, a telephone rings and a mother picks up and passes the phone to her grandson who says, come on home, mama. And she does. And she gets to wish her beloved aunt the happiest of birthdays. And she lives in this timeline. A mother does not sit by a phone and show up to court looking for a daughter that the police will never allow to return. Lord, let there be a universe without the cover up without the abuse, the murder, before the red, white, and blue lights signal and flash the end of yet another black life. Please let there be another timeline where the police who killed Waukesha are held accountable, where the LAPD no longer terrorize our community. God damn, please let there be an alternate universe and in it a timeline where a mother receives a phone call and in it that phone call leads to a court date and that court date leads to a fair process, whatever that means for this country. And a mother drives her daughter back and she goes home. And on this Resurrection Sunday, on this timeline somewhere, a telephone rings and a mother goes home to her son and black joy is synonymous with the reimagined justice. And instead of prison bars and over police states, the community is supported and healed and whole. And on this Resurrection Sunday, we celebrate a life that got to live to her fullest capacity. And on this timeline, the ancestors smile and say, well done. We'll see you in a good long while. But take your time, baby. And we do. I... Uh... I pledge to dedicate this time and my time, energy, space, and platform to black women, to queer black women, uh, and especially trans black women. I wanna make sure to uplift the names of some of our trans siblings whose light was stolen far too soon. Our sisters, Dominique Remy Fells and Raya Milton and Nina Pop. I wanna uplift our brother, Tony McDade. We say their names and remember why we fight. Ashe. So uh, in terms of this call to action, you know, uh, questions that I've been asking uh, everyone in my life, 
Um, but I'm asking for my employers, my agents, crooked elected officials like the mayor, like city council, but also my friends, my family, and also of myself. Uh, the question is, how are you showing up for black lives? Uh, and not just at a protest or, or with a black square, but how are you showing up in real solidarity in the service of our demands to one, defund the police and reinvest in our community, and two, prosecute the cops that kill our people. So as I'm sharing this reading, please consider that question, how are you showing up for black lives? Um, and specifically, how are you supporting the queer black women who've been on the ground doing this organizing work for years? I joined Black Lives Matter Los Angeles back in 2016 um, because I wanted to make an impact, a real impact on state-sanctioned violence against black folks. Um, I loved that BLM was founded by black women, two of which are queer black women. I was inspired by the fact that our guiding principles and our work uh, says and shows a commitment that all black lives matter regardless of actual perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status or location. And that's something that's so important as we're doing this work and, and that we're showing up uh, for black lives. I feel like there's a lot of misinformation going around. And uh, if you go to my page um, and to Black Lives Matter Los Angeles or to Patrice Cullors page, you'll see a lot more information than what I'm even sharing in this space. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of misinformation going around and I implore you to do more research on what we've been doing thus far and our plan for collective liberation. And something that's critical to that work is our political education. Uh, you know, Black women have been theorizing and thinking through solutions for our freedom since the dawn of time. You see from, from Harriet Tubman, who's saying, my people are free, to Sojourner Truth, to Bell Hooks, to Audre Lorde, praise be, right? To our sisters, Marsha P. Johnson and Stormé Delavier, like to present day revolutionaries, like I mentioned Patrice Cullors and sister Dr. Alexis Pauline Gums, like please spend time with these women's work and their words. All that to say, I'm hella grateful for the black women whose shoulders we stand on. Uh, they told their truths and allowed me to do the same. And, you know, I've been over here singing Lauryn Hill, gotta find peace of mind. And I know for everyone that's experiencing, but particularly for black women and black folks who are experiencing black death on a loop, how exhausting all of this can be. Um, and so I really wanna encourage you to recharge. And uh, part of that for me was going to, to the water yesterday. Anyway, home. Upon waking from a nap underwater, and this water I emerge alive, baptized, once spoke and holy tongues, now speak different language, still holy divine, entwined in my lover's mouths and limbs, whispering wet truths spoken across or toward the gender divide. God knows my heart, my desires, plural, speaking truths of wanton lust, deliberate and afraid of nothing. Pastor Swansea lied, told me I would die, but Lord told me different. See how I embrace my difference. Look at my float now, breathing underwater, gloating by. See how my lover's limbs hold me, God, whispering in the air-locked space between us. And is that not what God intended? 
for her creation to create new life, new ways to admit we are here and alive. And should that not be a celebration? Our bodies caught, knees knocking, spines spinning, souls arching, aching around each other, caught up in a ghost, a spell, and a forgotten Southern magic ain't no masses religion. Some spirit we were forced to conjure on some foreign plantation in some white man's native tongue. His God, all lowercase, all white. Did we forget the visions black in our dreams? Today, I relearn my power. This love, a reflection rippling in waves of ancient waters. History now present. I am present and whole and clean and here my body a vessel born to float when i was thinking about this poem i really just you know like i said i want to encourage uh especially black women take care of yourselves during this time um this is a movement not a moment right um, and, you know, this knowing that this is lifelong work that we've dedicated ourselves to, um, make sure that you're taking care of yourself because, you know, we tend to take care of everyone else and neglect ourselves. Anyway, I just, yeah, I, I really want to say thank you guys for, uh, for, you know, the space and this platform. I have one more poem for you. Um, and then, uh, I'll share a quick little sign out and call to action, but, uh, I dedicate this last poem to y'all, especially the black queer women that where would I be? Who would I be without you? I love you. Uh, a poem from my girls on a Saturday night. Tonight, the women gathered along the river, dedicated to care for each other, learning together in the present, theorizing a past provided by our elders, building a future full of affirmations, we are rising. Tonight, the black women gathered to speak about the times, to navigate our way through and across trauma, and even still, we make light, find joy, even at the bottom of an endless stream, tears flow and water gardens, and still come. With the new moon and the love of our ancestors, been doing this God work since before we knew how to put a name to the pain. We unpack sorrow all too familiar, carrying all this baggage we let go. The weight a little easier to hold with all these brown hands, letting go, holding up, trusting each other whole. Braiding, combing, oiling, love to locks and froze. Tenderness at the root. There is tenderness in these roots. And somehow we find a way to laugh and laugh and laugh. And joy is an old friend come over with a bottle of wine and her stash of curly pudding. And that new, new playlist chock full of Erica, Lauren, Jill, Jamila, St. Abo, that young FKA. And a reminder that we matter are worthy, important, and most importantly loved. We love and somehow find hope again, home again. Don't let the hype fool you. Once upon a time, black women lifted each other up and we lived, honey. We thrived. So 
those are the poems I had to share. Um, you know, please remember as you're you're looking for ways to get involved and engaged, um, please make sure you're supporting Black Lives Matter, specifically if you're in Los Angeles, Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, um, and the movement for Black Lives and our global demands to defund the police and reinvest in our community. Um, and to, to prosecute the cops that kill our people. Um, we have a district attorney in office right now who does not care, who has ignored our cries. And so please use your voices at the polls, uh, in your places of work, in your lives, um, and in your fight and commitment for black lives. You know, I'm, I'm off right now to escape and to uh, take care of myself and listen to a meditation. I can't, if you want to connect with me, my name is Yasmin Mune Watkins. All love and power to the people, y'all. Yo, uh, we about to step into the one light. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yeah, This is broadcast live on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am Vic Jarami, and you are listening to a special Pride program from Feminist Magazine. Innovating dialogue, informative public affairs, news and information, innovative music, non-commercial, listener-supported, culturally diverse radio. We are KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles. Bottom line, I'm going to make it home. And now we're joined by Jeanette Bronson, who's one of the co-founders of Blue, Black Lesbians United. Welcome to Feminist Magazine's Pride special show, Jeanette. Thanks for having me. All right. So we're friends. We can chat. And I would love to share with our listeners a whole lot about Blue and all the amazing programming and community building that you've been doing in this time. But first of all, Let's tell listeners, if you can, about, you know, what Blue does, um, why it started, and, and why it matters right now. 
Old Blue, or Black Lesbians United. Uh, we were founded about a dozen years ago. In all honesty, though, our foundation came from our old organization, which was United Lesbians of African Heritage, which was founded in 1991. So between that organization and this organization, um, we're best known for having, at this point, 26 black lesbian retreats. Wow. So we have an annual retreat. <laughs> we have an annual retreat every year. Usually it's in September. And uh, between 200 and 300 women uh, attend. So thousands of women at this point have participated. And tell us a little bit about you. How did you come to actually become part of this amazing and, and like ongoing endeavor? Well, you know, it's one of those funny stories where you get invited to an event and then you're too afraid to go because you're not sure about what you're going to wear or what your hair looks like or whether you're too fat or too thin. And I, I didn't go initially. And then my friends went. And then I, I went to the first uh, retreat back in 1991, and I found my home. It was as if this place was always waiting for me. These geniuses, that these visionaries that put it together created a, a space just for me, and I've been, been doing it ever since. And the mission statement is kind of aligned with your personal mission, right? Well, it's funny because it's something I actually said. I was speaking on behalf of of the organization, and I said that our goal is to make the world safe for black lesbians. And I, to me, it was kind of a throw-off statement, and I moved on, and everybody started coining it and using it, and it became our actual mission statement. So, yes. Absolutely. So this year, things are a little different. The The retreat has had to be canceled because we have no idea what's going on. But you have been creating virtual community um, with weekly Zoom and all kinds of programming. And how has this all been so different? But at the same time, how is it connected to your usual mission and, you know, making the world safer for black lesbians? Well, you know, when we started or when we had to make the hard decision not to meet in person this year, right? we... Um, and that was difficult because people were, women were still clamoring, saying that they would come. And that was hard because I wasn't sure that I would go because I'm in several different high-risk groups. So it was very difficult to make that decision. But then we started um, having events online. And people who could not attend regularly could find us online. And we were still able to kind of drum up the same kind of joy and the excitement I mean, the first time we had a town hall on Zoom and everybody just saw each other, people were screaming and crying and waving and, and sending, you know, hugs, you know, through the camera to each other. And it was so amazing. And, you know, we were able to have, you know, different types of workshops or different types of meetings where people could come together. And we were really just kind of getting our footing when um, Brianna happened and George Floyd happened and... Uh, Rayshard, Rayshard happened, and the Central Park situation happened, and we were kind of thrown again for a loop because, you know, I had plans for, we were going to have something called Blue Summer, and we had a logo, and I even showed you the logo, and it was cute, with a right. lounge chair and a sun and a beach umbrella, but no longer did it feel that way. No longer could we, you know, just move forward with programming a fun summer where we'd have workshops and events and activities and now we, we we've had to change. The the week that all of that happened, 
we were we had a planning meeting to organize the town hall where we were going to discuss this fun summer, and everybody on the planning committee was so in their emotions that we couldn't plan anything. We just had to share how we were all feeling. And that morphed into us having community meetings where we had women just calling in to share their feelings because it's one thing to be at home, but it's another thing to be constantly bombarded by all of these messages, um, you know, regarding these social justice events. But the duality of the fact that we were dealing with COVID and then when it became apparent that it was about people of color, poor people, and working people, and it seemed like the country completely shifted. It felt like, oh, COVID's not important anymore. Right. Um, that that pain, it, it's hard to even to describe to my friends the amount of pain there is in that. The amount of pain of feeling like, oh, um, there's a kind of dismissal or disposability in who are the more high-risk victims. Absolutely. Wow. You feel, we feel abandoned. I mean, initially we were one country and we're marching forward and we're going to fix this. And then not anymore. Not anymore. And it, there's also the, the aspect of the social distancing and how many folks are feeling isolated in this time when all of this kind of these realizations are hitting everyone. So what Blue is trying to do then is connect, right? Absolutely. Um, the I can't stress enough how important it is to connect. And we've been doing a newsletter that has been featuring what other groups are doing. I mean, we, we don't have to do everything. So it's amazing now in this world we're seeing, um, you know, events from New York and the Black in Space Pride event from Washington, D.C., and, you know, different concerts that are happening, and women are able to come together and participate. And I say women, and I mean we reach many more people than just women, so I, I forgive me for that. But it really has created an, an arena where, you know, we're cross-pollinating across the country and across the globe, really. Right. So that's kind of the, the small silver lining of this, <laughs> of this well, everything being virtual. But you know, just looking through the newsletters over the past few weeks, it is, it's been absolutely amazing, kind of the the breadth and, and depth and kind of variety of yoga and comedy and some sort of multi-week spirituality, connecting, breathing groups and all sorts of things that are happening. But I did just look at the one that happened around Juneteenth that was created by Kisha Lynn Moore Elliott, and you specifically have put into the newsletters that you preach the same message, take action. And she actually created an event that happened on Juneteenth that was a take action. It was a moment when folks could stand together and and reflect and be connected. Can you tell us a bit about that one? I will. And I'll tell you a little bit about Kisha Lynn as well. She's an amazing woman. She's an educator. And she she came to the retreat for the first time in October or after hearing about it for years. And she said that she had found a home. Right. And she was so excited to participate. And I had her come and join into my Blue Summer Committee because she has amazing ideas. And we were talking about the pain and 
you know, what everybody's been going through. And, you know, she took our mission, you know, one of our statements, we stole this from my friend Tori who said this and Joan Baez who said this, but the antidote to, to fear is action. Right. And if, and, and, you know, she created this action, which was called Say My, Say Their Names Live. And what she did was she gave people access to the lists of, of black people who've been killed, basically by law enforcement, and created a platform where people could read the names and then record them and then share them throughout social media. And it was really a powerful experience. I'm so proud that um, she was able to create that and, you know, not just bring our community together, but the greater community together. Right, and so it was a it was a healing ritual, um, as you called it, and also a mindful protest. So there's just like all kinds of different ways to be protesting and making change, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's I'm very impressed by young people. I'm impressed by our older people as well. But um, you know, people are are willing to come together a little more. I think now. Um, especially when we have a space to share how we feel. And I think what's different about what we're doing with Blue is we kind of have a shorthand. You know, if I'm if I'm in a, just a general lesbian group, then people want to know how I feel about what's going on with, you know, the, the police killings or how I feel about the riots or how I feel about, you know, all of this. And, I, you know, we don't have to have the all of that explanation. We are mostly in the same place. We're right. able just to share how we feel. Right. And I think that that's kind of something really specific, The that it's like lived intersectionality that a lot of us do in the queer community is, but what Blue is, 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 is carrying that intersectionality, black and lesbian identities throughout the year now, right? Yes. And, mm-hmm. uh, and we try, we very much try to create a loving space, a not competitive space. We're not, it's not about who's better than who. It's not about who has more money or, you know, who, even who's dating who. We try to create a space where everybody can come together and be one family. And sometimes I forget that we're successful at that. But one of our, our uh, younger sisters um, called me the other day and we were talking, and she's out there doing all this activism in, in the general space at this point. And she said she didn't realize how amazing and how safe and how what family blue was until she got out there in the rest of the world to see how boisterous it was and how much turmoil it is and how, you know, it's not a supportive space, especially for black women. Right. So she, she really wanted to make sure that we knew that we were doing the right thing. Okay, well, you need to be getting lots of kudos and appreciation for for holding this together over all the years. So, okay, what's next? I don't know. That's that's a big question because some of us feel like we don't know what's next next week. But what's next for Blue? It's coming to the end of Pride Month. This is the Global Pride Special Week. And where do we go now? Where's Blue going now? Well, I have to say we are missing Pride a bit yeah. because Pride is generally our kickoff season to when we roll into the retreat. And so, we're, you know, we have events or we bring women out in the community, not necessarily to recruit, but to meet people and tell them about the event. Right. I mean, you can say so much online, but when they actually see people, you know, at Long Beach Pride or the L.A. Pride or the San Bernardino Pride or Antelope Valley or wherever we go, um, you know, we're able to bring people into the family, and it's also a great way to train people 
out in the community. So, you know, I'm missing that. And, and who does not miss getting the hugs from the P-Flag folks? Yeah. I'm, I'm getting a little teary. Anyway, <laughs> um, seriously, though, I cry every time I see them. Um, so where do we go next? It's, and honestly, I don't know. Somebody asked me yesterday, is it easier now that I don't have to plan for the retreat? Because planning for the retreat is a full six-month, full-time job. And my honest answer was, no, this is a little more stressful because I don't know when this ends. Right. Yeah, I have no idea when this ends. So what we're planning is something a little more open-ended and um, networking with many other organizations and trying to keep a veneer of hope when, you know, we're not exactly sure if there's something to be hopeful about. Right. I mean, in terms of the shift in consciousness around the Black Lives Matter movement and the upcoming election, and so many things are both like small flames, but at the same time, we're unsure. Yes. But again, I, you know, we, we, we as a country are doing better than some other places, so I have to remember that. And I have to find some, some, glimmer of hope. You know. And as I said, we may suffer alone, but you know, together we'll survive. If we come together, we will survive this no matter what happens. So I think that is our core strength, that we, that we do have you know, a, a great group of people, a great group of women who are willing to participate, willing to care about each other, reach out and, and check on each other. Um, some people have been ill, some people have lost fel- you know, family, relatives. The fact that, that we're able to reach out and provide structure and support to each other is truly amazing. It's family. It is. Well, we've been talking to Jeanette Bronson, who's one of the co-founders of Blue, Black Lesbians United. And Jeanette, um, can you give our listeners a little bit of info about where folks can find out more about you, um, social media, website, that kind of thing? Well, our website is blacklesbiansunited.org. And on Instagram, Twitter, which I'm very bad at, at updating, and Facebook, it's BL United. So I call it Blue United, but Blue BL United on all of those spaces. All of those spaces. And we'll make sure to have those links on our website as well. Wow. Well, thank you so much for making the time to join us virtually today. And we will see you at the next Pride if not before. Well, thank you, Lynn. And we're all a big fan of the show, so continue your great work. Thank you. And we are wrapping up the Pridecast edition of Feminist Magazine. Thanks to Kiana Williams for engineering help. And thanks to all of our guests today, Alexis Clement, Yasmin Monet-Watkins, and Jeanette Bronson. Today's intro music was by Maya Jane Coles with music from Jill Scott. And don't forget, 
You can find all the links from our program today on our website, feministmagazine.org. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and we share behind-the-scenes photos on Instagram. Or you can email us oldschoolstyle at feministmagazine at yahoo.com. Feminist Magazine is a show produced by a coalition of feminist volunteers, and the programs are archived in the kpfk.org audio archives. You can find podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and the Stitcher app. Today, we're honored to be part of the Pridecast Live special. Check out our website and social media links for more Feminist Magazine programming coming soon. Thanks for listening. That was a special edition of Feminist Magazine by host Lynn Harris-Ballin for Pridecast Live. Thank you, Lynn. This is Vic Jaramie. Donations help keep KPFK alive. Your tax-deductible donation helps fund new equipment, repairs, shows, community events, and station operation. Our programming is free of influence from big oil, pharmaceutical companies, banks, and the military-industrial complex. We don't take money from them. We depend on you. Help us keep KPFK and progressive independent media alive. Go to kpfk.org and contribute today. Thank you for your support. Because you were born this way, baby.